Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Hello, Otterites. This is episode 156. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. So, the man Alice Roosevelt Longworth once famously claimed was weaned on a pickle, Calvin Coolidge, is our hero for this episode. Uh, This is another one of these where I'm not sure the other two fellows would have ever put Cal... On the schedule, but I'm a big enough fan that uh, I wanted him on, on the on the list here. We admire him. We well, don't know yeah. him like you know him. You've made him your uh, object of study. You and you've got. Yeah. I mean, you're sitting yeah. here looking at two books about him, two biographies that we're that we've got here. Uh, no, you're right. I probably would not have bought that, but but I certainly once the name is is brought up, I was like, oh yeah, we should do one on him. Yep. Absolutely, uh, because he's underappreciated. I truly believe very he's underappreciated. Much, very much. And yeah. I think that deserves a little bit. And that somehow comes because he ascended the office by the death of his predecessor, which sometimes that that brings a little bit. I mean, that doesn't always a good thing. Of course, Teddy Roosevelt did it, but uh, well, you know, it, so did Chester Arthur and <laughs> Alexander, you know, and Andrew Johnson. So yeah. you know, this but is not a thing. A man like Coolidge is often overshadowed because we like action-oriented people are always attracted to us. He is not in that tradition. He is not a, a, a Theodore Roosevelt. He's not even a Herbert Hoover. Uh, Thank God for that, actually. You know, yeah, because... But you mentioned the books. I'll just... Yeah, that's a good place to start. Uh, Robert Sobel, Coolidge, and American Enigma. Uh, well not titled, a, yes. Not a big read. Very good stuff. Um, another one that I think is a little deeper is Coolidge by Amity Schles. Uh, who's a, a you know very modern biographer? It has a lot of praise here on the dust jacket. What's the year on that one? Uh, this is fairly recent. And I know I've st- I kind of stopped you because know, she's a fairly recent. Uh, it's twenty thirteen. Yeah, recent enough. Yeah, within the last decade. Yeah, uh, not that Coolidge gets many new biographies <laughs> that often, uh, but it is enormously thick. Sitting here looking at the hardback, and I know it looks good on your shelf. Uh, that's got to be in depth. Yes, it's it's very weighty. Uh, and it is really good stuff. She's a very good biographer. Uh, but Coolidge is, uh, yes, he is one of those that's kind of an accidental president. Um, well, he also has the benefit of presiding over a time of great American prosperity. Uh, now, he does have his scandals, of course, uh, which, you know, very rare that a president doesn't. Uh, so, but, you know, in many ways, I think you can overlook him because he's out of office when the Great Depression happens. Uh, he wisely did not run for another term. <laughs> and he could have. And he could have. have. He could have. Uh, and so he missed being uh, blamed for the Great Depression. So he's a New Englander. And at that Which time, we won't hold against him. Yes, New Englanders are known for their parsimony and thriftiness and things like that. And he's very much in that old school Presbyterian thrifty, don't waste anything, Calvinist predestination. Sort of tradition. Um, He was very well balanced by his wife, Grace, who was much more of an outgoing person. Mm -hmm. Um, A really, really good match and two people who really did adore each other. Um, That is so often the story, not always, but so often the story for successful individuals is they, they had a good spouse. Yep. You have a good partner in life, and you're not you're not viewing the partnership as well. This is to our advantage. It's well, yeah. It's not a partnership. Yeah. It's it, it's it's a spousal relationship. Well, it's a partnership. It's not a union. 
Well, <laughs> and we think think about it theologically. Yes, that's right. Yeah, a contract is is different than a, a covenant. Very much so. Yeah, and a partnership is a contract. <clears throat> that's right. And a, a marriage that is a union is a covenant. Yes, that's right. So. Yeah, but he's he's not looking at grace as someone that, hey, she's going to help me get elected to things. They really did view each other very warmly. Right. She's not Hillary Clinton. You know, no, I wouldn't be married. I'd still be married to the president of the United States if I had married that guy who's now pumping gas. Yeah. Um, he, uh, the, the story of his rise is interesting. He's um, lieutenant governor, popularly elected, but at one-year terms. Uh, of Massachusetts, he was from that Vermont. That was a very New England thing, apparently. Yeah, yeah Maine had the same thing. Kind of turned those one, one or two-year terms, um, but he's very successful, and he's he's actually a part of the administration. He's not a figurehead. Uh, then he runs for governor on his own, and the Boston police strike. Yes, kind of makes him. He he takes a decisive action. He he backs the city. Uh, it's not that he's not sympathetic to, um, you know, organized labor. He, he was not just super anti-union, but he put a stake in the ground. You cannot strike against the public interest at any time. Right. This public is the, unions yeah. cannot strike. Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, conservatives, conservative philosoph- philosophically get from Silent Cal. That's right. As far as unions go, is that they tend to very much be against public union striking, uh, as well as public unions being able to bargain with the people that you know they then vote and donate money to. <laughs> uh, to you know, it, it's a very uh, right. sycophantic and, and uh, uh, parasitic, parasitic, uh, what's symbiotic. No, no, no what's that, that's the, too nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when brother and sister have sex, uh, uh, incestuous. incestuous. That's the word. Yes, it's right. very incestuous relationship. relationship. Yeah. So um, he's very much seen nationally then as a very decisive leader, and of course the parallel is Reagan and the air traffic controller strike. I was going to say I was right. hoping you were going to go there. He's a huge, uh, he's a huge, uh, huge hero for, for Reagan. Yeah, uh, Reagan puts Coolidge's portrait back in the Oval Office. I think it is, uh, and and that that wording. You know, Reagan lifts that almost precisely uh, during the, his statement on the air traffic controller strike. You can't strike against a public interest. Uh, a public union just cannot do that. Right. That, and to be fair uh, to, the, to the public unions, that does presuppose that those that you are, I don't want to say unionized against, but, but those who are employing the union members should bargain fairly. Uh, that's that's that correct. is that is a gr- even greater responsibility on them than it is on a private company. Very much so. Yes. Yeah, it's just uh, in many respects, it's not he. Neither neither Reagan nor Coolidge are actually interfering in how these two sides negotiate, except for the fact is you guys can do anything except strike. Right. You have to work your differences out, and you both are culpable for that for your own mistakes and or otherwise. Right. But. Strike is not to keep working. Strike is not an option. You have to continue working through that. Right. Um, and that's that's kind of where we are today. I mean, that uh, it's not. I don't know that it's been tested since that time. Probably not. But you know, again, that incestuous relationship with public unions and those that uh, are in power uh, has almost become to the point where there's no point because 
the unions get whatever they want, or at least enough of whatever they want to where it's not been an issue. Uh, and really, probably historically, public unions have not been on strike all that often, especially compared to private unions. Well, that's right, because as a general rule, and this is very optimistic on my part, I know that, both sides recognize the stakes. We don't have the option of striking. We've got to work this out. One way or the other, we've got to work this well, out. You know, in the public size, nobody wins when police, fire, air traffic controllers go on strike. That's correct. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's the point. That nobody wins. So uh, this is in uh, 1919, um, and in these elections for Massachusetts governor, he's running on a fairly uh, obvious platform. I mean, it's he stakes out a real platform uh, during these. Uh, governor and lieutenant governor elections in Massachusetts. It's fiscal conservatism, a sort of non-specific uh, objection to prohibition, uh, support for women's suffrage. So there's a, a real platform there, not just hey, I'm a nice guy, vote for me. So real this is, this plan is of action. 1919. Yes, 1918, 1919. I should say because you know that's when. That's when women's suffrage was a huge, big deal. Yes, and he was... He was for it. He was right. for it. He Absolutely. Was for it. And he was, he was on the right side of that issue, to say. Um, well, he also, uh, again, this is after he becomes president, but, you know, he signed the, uh, the Indian Citizenship Act. Yes. So he was very much, you know, in many ways, by today's standards, some would call him a liberal. Uh, yet he is the quintessential conservative in the eyes of a Reagan. That's right, yeah. Which is, there's an irony yeah. for you on he, that. Uh, racial equality... Mm-hmm. You know, he was not someone who wanted Klan support. I mean, Klan is big in the 20s, unfortunately. Right, because that's the new Klan. That's not the... Again, there's the original Klan that kind of died out, but then well, in the 20s... That Grant suppressed, actually. Yeah, well, yeah but I mean, yeah. It, it wasn't a real thing right. as far as affecting lives like it became again in the 20s. Yeah, they yeah. were it street thugs then. They were organized by this time. Yeah. Uh, so he, he stood apart from that. But the 1920 election, um, it, it is a classic uh, smoke-filled room kind of deal. They settle on, the party bosses settle on uh, Harding from Ohio. They make a statement to the gathered delegates that they want Irvin Linroot of Wisconsin as the running mate. And then they kind of adjourn <laughs> to figure out, well, they'll do what we tell them. Let's go get busy on something else. And the delegates balk at being, you know... Told what to do. Told what to do. And being... And Coolidge is added to the ticket kind of spontaneously. Uh, he wasn't running. I mean, he, he knew he, there was interest. He had run sixth, I think, in the delegate count at one point. Yeah. Um, but then suddenly, there he is. He's on the ticket with Warren G. Harding. Mm-hmm. Harding was a uh, not exceptionally popular, though. If I, if I recall my history, well, he won. I mean, I know, but it, it was it they, took they a little won time. handily in nineteen twenty. Right. Yeah. Uh, people were kind of worn out. Uh, that's what I'm. That's what I'm going is the whole Wilsonian business. They're done with that. So as long as you put up somebody palpable, pal- palatable, palatable, me, yeah, then they're probably going to win. And Harding was seen as that because as his administration unfolded, he was kind of the, one of those originals do-nothing presidents in many things. I mean, Harding 
Harding had, you know, he wanted to put forward legislation. Yeah. He brought people like Mellon into the government. Mm-hmm. Is part of, like, Carnegie Mellon? Yes. yes. Andrew Mellon, Treasury Secretary. Coolidge's genius was he kept them. He kept people that were competent around. Um, Honestly, that is probably one of the truest signs of a good leader. That's right. Yeah. And his whole focus was basically that the more the government does, the more things are going to get screwed up. Mm. We just, we need to trust people. They will take care of what they need to take care of. But at the same time, he was also very much a person who wanted to advance scientific interests. Radio, mm-hmm. you know, he's not just hands-offing things like radio and the automobile. He's promoting these as things that will change American lives for the better. Mm-hmm. That and, was his lens. Yeah, yeah, very and that, much. And that's, and that's one of the reasons that he's, he's well-regarded is because he's... he's I don't want to say he's a futurist, but he's a pragmatist, recognizing he has the ability to look at these things and seeing them as with the potential they have that is not yet evident, except for during Yeah, I mean, the even in, as popular as the automobile is in the 20s, at, as much as like the Model T and that has taken off, it, at that moment, it is hard to see where the car goes. Yeah, it, he's well, not going to see where it. Where it could take <coughs> us. But not going to see it as... Every family not only owning one but owning multiples, where which is where we are today. Oh yeah, that's really a post. I mean, that's really a post sixties thing. That's right. Yeah, owning multiples. Uh, that's right. And it's because really only until women enter the workforce in and mass that owning multiple vehicles is a necessity. Right. But he he's willing to let it play out. Um. And and. Be, be willing to let it see where it can go. Recognizing that, as a general rule, only good can come from this. Yeah, and, and like with radio, understanding that, okay, well, if we can set a fair and level playing field, this can be revolutionary. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and he's, he's involved in that. Um, now, of course, I do always like this part of the story for him, the famous silent cow. You have to talk about that. Yes. yes. Um, I don't, I think it's apocryphal, the, this kind of, it is, yeah, you know, nobody, Dorothy Parker really didn't say it, uh, he, he said, no, that never happened, but the famous quote is, somebody comes up to him at a dinner and says, I made a bet today that I could get more than two words out of you, and he replies, you lose. Right. So he was, he, he was not a poor public speaker by any means. He could really be persuasive. As a public speaker, but privately, he he was kind of a retiring New Englander, and yes, he played that up. He knew what politics. He knew how to have how to have a persona in politics. Right. He knew that that worked. Uh, he told somebody, um, "I think the American people want a solemn ass as president, so I'm going to play that part." <laughs> um. But yeah, you know, again, that was Alice Roosevelt Longworth. Uh, you know, when he wished he was elsewhere, he pursed his lips, folded his arms, and said nothing. He looked then precisely as though he had been weaned on a pickle. <laughs> I 
I do love that that statement. <laughs> Weaned on a pickle. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and Dorothy Parker about um, hearing that Coolidge had died reportedly remarked, how can they tell? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so again, it, he was naturally a reserved individual. He he thought the president should be, he was playing that as a, as a persona as well. But also there's something very crucial. In 1924, um, his son died, mm-hmm. the oldest son. His son had been playing tennis at the White House without socks. Uh, mm-hmm. And his shoes gave him a blister. Yeah. The blister becomes infected. And of all the things, mm-hmm. he gets sepsis and dies. Holy crap. For so a blister I was not aware of that particular story. Yes. Yeah. So that profoundly affects Coolidge and his wife, Grace. Uh, to the point of, of when you, you, know, you study this with the benefit of distance and... And what we know now about uh, traumatic stress and, and things like that, he's essentially shutting down. He's, he's got clinical depression at this point. Of course. Um, he just does not bounce back. And I think it's certainly a huge factor in declining to run in 28. Right. Um, his presidency is from 23 to 29. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not a big Hoover fan, but he, you know, okay, you could... And people were ready kind of for that man of action. Um, and certainly at this point, there's scholarship and, and even some people who are pro-Coolidge. Yes, there are some things that were done in the 20s under his policies that precipitate the Depression. Um but you know, we could have bounced back out of the depression. Right. Hoover did exactly the wrong things in in, in trying to mitigate. Yeah. And so did Roosevelt. I mean, to, yes, Roosevelt. Uh, you know, still like to credit him for bringing us out of the depression, but it was the war that brought us out of the right. depression. Right. It's you know, it's not hard to get out of a depression if you borrow a shit ton of money and direct everybody to start building stuff for the government. Right. You know, that's. You but know, once you're done building that stuff. What do you do? There's what nothing there? to go with. Yeah. yeah it's, so and it's still there was again not to segue off into the, the bad things of, of Roosevelt, but uh, you know even in the midst of the depression there was a what they call a recession. I don't know how a depression can have a recession, uh, but you know things still weren't going well even with all the crap that they were doing. Uh, it just you know you can only build so many government buildings and clean up so many parks. You know, only so many big-time projects. Right. In the end, you have to have where the individual person, their wages are growing and inflation is lower and things like that. Right. Uh, but that was, I mean, that was Coolidge. That's what he, he again, retaining Mellon, the, the idea is we're going to try to keep government spending minimized. There, that By that method, then... We'll keep taxation minimized. We'll be able to pay off our debts from World War One, which they did. Yeah. And the country really did enjoy prosperity. Now, how much of that prosperity is because we'd already hoovered up everything from Europe during the war? I think you can use hoovered up for that period, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're attempting to make two things fit there together that I don't think quite yeah. work. Well, it was an accident, but... Uh, 
you know, we vacuumed up everything that was worth having out of Britain and France out of, out of the war. I mean, right. we financed Britain and France's uh, war effort right. to a huge degree. France would then turn around and finance Russia's war effort to a huge degree. And I'm sure taking a cut along the way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Nobody does anything for free here. So, yes, I mean, part of this is, you know, that we had no choice but to be kind of solvent and, and, and prosperous because we had all the money anyway. Right. And it's not unlike what happened after World War II. Yeah. Uh, in that when you're really the only uh, industrialized country left standing, okay. it's kind of hard not to be prosperous for a for well, Yeah, because after. we were never bombed. Everybody else was. <laughs> well, so. outside of yeah. uh, a few Aleutian Islands in Hawaii. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. But there ain't no factories over there. Yeah, that's right. But even more in World War One, not only were we not really attacked and, and had our, our infrastructure damaged, but we really did... You know, Britain and France mortgaged their future to us to survive the war. Um, well, and also, especially England, you know, they, uh, and France as well, but in England, the way they fought the war, you know, uh, taking entire villages of conscripts and putting them all in the same battalion, you yeah. know, they, and then when you lose that battalion at Verdun, you've basically destroyed the future of that village. Yes. Uh, you know, and we were only in the war for a year. Uh, you know, as far as really less than a year by the time you get troops over there. Yeah. Uh, One summer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, which, you know, you could argue that, you know, do we make the difference or not? Yeah, we probably do because uh, at least in ending it that much faster. It was probably going to end the way it did, but we brought it, we helped it happen a lot faster. Uh, and certainly by providing, uh, you know, the material and the, and the money, we certainly did as yeah. well. But, but Coolidge, I think, does deserve credit then for keeping that going uh, and, and, again, paying debts off, keeping the government solvent and not heavily in debt, keeping taxation low so that people keep what they are earning. Well, you know, it's very interesting because uh, I was just looking at some of the, uh, the stuff on his taxation. Uh, and you can see why Reagan uh, was a great, uh, how he influenced Reagan's policies. Uh, at, at, after the, uh, the Revenue Act that he got passed, only the top 2% of earners paid income tax in the U.S. That's a liberal's wet dream. Mm-hmm. Is for only the, I mean, that's going beyond just the top 1%. We've actually added the next 1% below them, and they're paying for everything. And, and, you know, at the time, that was anybody basically making over $100,000 a year. <clears throat> and that was able to fund the government and do all of this other stuff you're trying, paying down the debt. So that was Reagan's idea. But Reagan, of course, was saddled with uh, the progressive programs that were started under Roosevelt and then expanded under Johnson uh, and probably was not workable in that sense. But, right. but you can see where that philosophy came from. And he actually achieved, in many ways, what you would almost call uh, a, a conservative utopia in how government was done. Yeah. It was a limited government, and that's what he meant. Yeah. Uh, when he thought, okay, this is beyond what the government's supposed to be doing, sometimes to his detriment. Yes. Yeah. You know, again, Hoover was much more of an activist. 
definitely wanted the government to do more. Um, you know, flooding along the Mississippi is an issue at this time. Yes, and, and, and you could argue he's on the wrong side of that because it's not just one state involved. Yeah. When you get multiple states involved, in my mind, you at least need the federal government to coordinate, if not... To at least set some standards or something. Yeah. Well, that's he, what the Interstate really, Commerce Clause was designed for, was that yeah. very thing. Yeah, but he really, he felt the government had no role, almost. In, right. in that, and, and in that case, I think he's wrong. He's wrong, yeah. 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 Uh, and not just in mitigating the flooding, but you're talking about something that was uh, for uh, you know, commerce that was vital to the entire U.S. up and down the Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is sent, that is a federal interest, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's you know do, no different than Eisenhower uh, setting up the uh, the federal interstate system. Yeah, the interstate highway system. Yeah. Uh, you know, granted that was more for military purposes, uh, supposedly, but yeah. uh, it's turned out to be the gateway for so much. Yeah, I mean, but realistically, yeah. nobody's going to invade the U.S. anyways. Uh, so, you know, was that really just to, as some say, well, we won't even get into that. No, I mean, I think Eisenhower understood there were many purposes there. Yes. And I think he understood it was a way to stitch the country together in a a method that hadn't been done before that would relieve sectional differences. Right. Because, I mean, even... Right on. He was right on. Yeah, I mean, even 80 years after the... 90 years after the Civil War, there are still sectional differences in in America. Oh, yeah. And, And Roosevelt thought this is something where... Eisenhower... I'm sorry, yes, Eisenhower, um, I, I believe he did feel that that would be something that you're taking and calling it I-95. You're not calling it the Florida Highway. Right. You know, you, it really doesn't matter where it is. It, it, we're going to be able to go from wherever to wherever. Right. And, and we're going to be able to be Americans and understand in the truest sense of the word. Right. We're going to be able to go and be, you know, a New Yorker's not going to feel different from a Floridian. Right. It, it's what enabled snowbirds. Uh, I mean, realistically. Yeah, very well put. Uh, yeah. It enables snowbirds. It's what enables uh, the, the poor people in Appalachia to move to Detroit in the late 50s and 60s yeah. uh, for work. It's what enabled the flight out of Detroit when the car companies crashed, they didn't crash, crash, but when everything went so bad in the 70s. Uh, so, you know, it enabled the movement of people to a degree that was never possible before. Uh, it enabled the ability of companies to become not just local, but national companies yeah. uh, in ways that it were never possible before. Walmart is not possible without the interstate system. So therefore, I mean, you could argue if you really hate Walmart enough that the interstate system is an evil thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think the it enables a diversification of the economy yeah. that helps make the economy more resilient. In you know, overall, yeah. yes, in a way that was not in the twenties and thirties. Well, and there's, there's some truth to that. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're a little bit rabbit hole in here, but you know. What we're it also for that, yes. Well, yeah, we, had, we didn't do that the last couple of episodes. But it's, it's a defense of Coolidge. Uh, yes, sure. When you have an economy boiling at the rate it did in the 20s and doing great in this golden age and the jazz age and all this, yes, it's got to come back down. But there's a peculiar set of circumstances that lead to the Great Depression 
And it's because the sectors of the economy are so dependent on each other. Right. You know, steel industry is dependent on the railroad industry. The railroad industry is dependent on agriculture in the center of the country. When you have the Dust Bowl and you have agricultural production in the center of the country drop precipitously for a sustained period of time, then the need for new rail uh, rolling stock and the need for new steel is going to drop precipitously. Right. And the need for coal is going to drop precipitously because the whole country's basically powered on coal at this time. Right, right. And so when all of that drops, all your investments are worthless. Right. Because there's nothing else to invest in. And, you know, it's a very complex issue. It's complicated. Uh, it's co- yeah, it's There's complicated. Trevor. He's Trevor. been in the bathroom for Thank a while, but he's here again. Yes. Thank you, Trevor. Yes. yes, don't go in there for a while. That's right, 20 minutes at least. <laughs> uh, it's very complicated in the sense that, um, you know, the stock market crash, as we have learned today, many times, especially since 1987, uh, which is the, the first major crack, a stock market crash after the Depression, uh, they really don't have to precipitate an economic downturn uh, because it's not real losses until you sell. And sure, your stocks may be valued less and therefore your quote unquote net worth is less, but it doesn't matter until yeah. you sell it and you need it. Right. And, and back then though, your value was directly related to your credit and your credit was related to, again, because there's this kind of narrow industrialization that's that so more tight. horizontal than vertical you mean or because in many ways there was a lot of that too yeah well it's just yeah like i said it's you know this industry depends on this industry depends on this industry and depends on this industry and your credit and everything is all tied into that so you can't expand you can't add on nobody can buy your product whereas today you know if we have a, a downturn in agriculture Okay, well, yeah, but that doesn't affect tech stocks, right? <laughs> so, right. Well, yeah, they're they're just more diverse and more resilient. Yeah, now. there's more diversity. Yeah. In what's By definition, made. those are, those are cause and effect. You know, the more yeah, diverse yeah. you are, the more you are resilient. But, yeah, so, you know, probably the the credit and the borrowing is which is ironic considering he was very much against that at the government level. Yeah, uh, and you know, there was probably a little bit of financial shenanigans going on in the stock market, which made a lot of those losses when a, when a drop happens. And I don't even remember what the the, uh, the trigger was that caused the drop. Cause it's been a while since I've studied it. Yes, I have, uh, I've forgotten as well. But, uh, but again, it's one of those things that didn't have to happen. But all the responses were, were panicked because, uh, you know, that's a lot of money. And a lot of influential people mm-hmm. were in danger of losing money. Uh, so that probably forces a lot of actions that, Shouldn't have happened. So in a lot of ways, they went from, well, you know what? We've been doing it all this way, and it, it, it's all screwed up. So we got to do exactly the opposite now. Yeah, and that is a lot of thinking to uh, the responses to the Great Depression is, well, we've always handled these things this way. No, we need to try something different. This is a big deal. We need to try something different. Be more activist. Right. And, you know, economic theory is very underdeveloped at this time. And, you know... When John Maynard Keynes comes along, it's it's a it's an attempt to make sense of things. Uh, he's, I think he's partially right about well, where he's right, he's right. Where he's wrong, he's very wrong. He's very wrong. Uh, yeah. So, you know, 
just the same with Milton Friedman, where he's very right, he's very right, where he's very, you know, the same kind of thing. Uh, but because they don't really have a good understanding of these things, they kind of go off the rails in the response. Yeah. Uh, I, personally, I think his approach to government was phenomenal and works perfectly for the time. Um, probably it's not as workable, although I think Reagan made a really good shot at it. Mm -hmm. uh, he couldn't exactly replicate what Coolidge did uh, because the circumstances of government and society were different. But in using Coolidge as a model and using Eisenhower as a model, Reagan really does provide growth oh, in yes. the second half of the 80s. And yet, you, oh, well, you know, oh, really? homeless. From 83 on. Yeah, from 83, you know, oh, there's a lot of nitpicking. But in general, the vast majority of Americans were better off in 1988 than they were in 1978. Oh, absolutely. They just were. And we survived an economic downturn in 91 better than we did in 1929. Right. Post well, in 87 and 91, because people were talking about a new Great Depression was going to happen because of, of uh, Black Friday in 1987, when the stock market dropped 500 points. That was about 25% of the stock market's value. That's, you know, think about what that would look like today. Mm -hmm. In one day that happened. And, you know, we survived it because people... Didn't panic. Well, they panicked, but... But they didn't approach things and do all the wrong things uh, that, that Hoover did. You know, no. Hoover... I guess there's panic and then there's panic. <laughs> well, there is. I mean, you know, you can, be, you can panic, but then end up doing the right thing or at least not the absolute worst thing. And you know, as we said, Hoover pretty much did the absolute worst thing. You know, all the protectionism and the closing in on ourselves. You know, we we're at the very beginning of, of a globalization of the economy. And when you take that factor out, in addition to all the other shocks that the economy is going through, and it's a really bad mix. So, you know, but again, back to what he did. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, when you look at what he does, he really should be studied more. Because, uh, you know, the Indian Citizenship Act is a big deal. Supporting uh, women's suffrage is, a, you know, granted that's prior to becoming president, but, you know, he's a proponent of that. Um, you know, getting so many people out of paying taxes, you know, everyday people, is a phenomenal thing. Every Republican has always been big on that, up until recently. You know, now we're always, well, you know, more people should be paying. Well, you know, who you, who's, your, who's your base, you know? Uh, yeah. But anyways. Well, um, it was, it very much was, it, it's not just coincidence. He was someone who stood for... The very average person. Yes. He understood the kind of the genius of the average in that people who get up every day and go to work mean something. And that's where we should be with this government. Right. I mean, that's, that's very much in his New England background, I would yes. say. Uh, his famous Have Faith in Massachusetts speech, okay, is, um, let's see here, I got the clip of it, and this is very famous. Do the day's work. If it be to protect the rights of the weak, whoever objects, do it. If it be to help a powerful corporation better to serve the people, whatever the opposition, do that. Expect to be called a stand pattern, but don't be a stand pattern. 
Expect to be called a demagogue, but don't be a demagogue. Don't hesitate to be as revolutionary as science. Don't hesitate to be as reactionary as a multiplication table. Don't expect to build up the weak by pulling down the strong. Okay? Don't hurry to legislate. Give administration a chance to catch up with the legislation. Oh, that's a, that's, those last two are just fantastic principles. And that, you know, that's something you should write on the bathroom mirror of everybody in the House and Senate. Right. So because, they well, they've got to justify their, their uh, ability to get reelected. You know, it's like every time there's a shooting, they want to pass more gun laws, but everything, in just about every case, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think there's been more than a couple of cases where guns used in these mass shootings have been legally obtained by people in their right minds. Uh, they were always, uh, you know, the people who had them did not have a legal right to have them. So what happened was the laws that already on the books were broken. Now, you're never going to be able to enforce it so that no law is ever not broken. That's just impossible. Because people are people, they will find ways around it. And it's the same kind of thing. You don't have to pass another law when there's already something on the books. Let the administration of the law catch up. Catch up. Now granted, the administration of the law is often unwilling or unable if they don't well, have the funds. And it can be politically advantageous. And it can be politically advantageous. To not enforce the law. That, and, that, and that can be on both sides. It can be politically advantageous for one side because you want to gin up the uh, your your side against the people who want to pass more laws. I mean, immigration is a classic example. Nobody wants to enforce that because right. Democrats want new voters and the Chamber of Commerce wants cheap labor. Yep. It holds... It holds labor prices down yep. to let an influx of unskilled people into the country. Right. So, it does. Although, you know, beyond uh, some very manual labor and, you know, working in restaurants, what have you, that, are, uh, that you can train. I mean, skill, you have to have skills to do that. But those skills are easily acquired. Yes. Is the thing. Uh, even a bricklayer, uh, while that's of, of manual labor, that's a very skilled thing, you can train people to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and much easier that you can train somebody to program a computer. Uh, we get some sheetrock up in this place. That's right. Hell, that's close enough. Let's just caulk it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so get a roof on these pyramids. That's right. <laughs> that's pyramids only got eighteen foot, eighteen inch footing. We can't have that. Yeah, they're going to have forty-two inch foot on pyramids. That's right. So let me interrupt you, sir. I, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm not doing my job here as a captain. Because we need to take a bourbon break. I was just going to suggest that because I'm so, almost through my glass. And yeah, I, don't want to uh, do that. I am uh, hitting some of your Heaven Hill six-year-old bottled and bond. Ah, excellent. Not bad. It's got a spicy character to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not quite as refined as the 1792, but a similar profile. Uh, spicy, kind of like a clove, almost uh, licorice a little bit, mm-hmm. that kind of flavor to it. Good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Francis, what did you... Uh, uh, I'm still uh, finishing, and I need to finish it, uh, the Heaven Hill 46. No, the Maker's 46. Oh, that's... It, it's, pardon me. Yeah, exactly right. The Maker's 46. Uh, maybe you've had too much. No, no, no. It's <laughs> a very small amount. Yes, uh, so I went to the uh, Jim Bean Black. Oh, really? Which, uh, 
uh, is very good one. It's one of those uh, three smaller bottles that I got from the, the kids uh, yeah. Christmas before yeah. last. And this is the one uh, that uh, opened our eyes to the ice or no ice. Indeed, that's yes. right. I remember that. Yes, thing. and uh, my Heaven Hill was on ice that, that really opens up the flavor a bunch, yep. I think. Yep, and so, you know, this one, it's one of these that... Um, uh, it, it is smoother than you would think. Uh, uh, more refined, I guess, is what you would say for a Jim Beam. Because, you know, most people think of Jim Beam, they do not think of high-end bourbon. Well, uh, Hank Williams Jr. favors it, that's for sure. Uh, and I do recall he had a song uh, about having, preferring his whiskey on ice and his women on fire. But that's another That's kind of hard to argue with. That's kind of hard to argue with. I have loved some ladies and I have loved Jim Beam. That's it. That's, that's right. They tried to kill him in 1973. So I was going to say, this man knows his <laughs> Hank Jr. song. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so, the Black Sabbath fan also knows his Hank Jr. But that's right. Well, you know, we, we all we have a walking paradox. <laughs> that, that's us. That is us. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it is a really good. Uh, Good bourbon. It's a surprise, and it's a pleasant surprise when you uh, when you have it. Because honestly, I just didn't have high expectations when we first had it. But it's got a good flavor. It's uh, it's smooth going down. It's not uh, really in your face kind of a bourbon. Right. Uh, I, I, sometimes I like that subtle uh, uh, flavor uh, and you know very good stuff. Nuanced. Yeah. Say. yeah. So uh, before we move off of the bourbon break and finish up about cow. You know, a quick toast, a quick salute to Calvin. Yes. Um, I think Francis was absolutely right, and, and Robert, you as well, I think you both mentioned this, that he really does bear studying. Yes. I, I, I mean, even for someone who doesn't want to replicate the circumstances of the 20s, but it's worth studying. The The U.S. was unqualifiedly a success in the 20s. Right. And, and yes, there are multiple factors And here. some unique circumstances. Yes. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just... Well, you know, he cut taxes, so we were rich. Yes, no, yeah, all that, of the, that came all, relatively late in the process. Yeah, I mean, That's all right. all of the things going on with us and the 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 credit we extended to Europe and all that, and the Harding and his phrasing of returning things to normalcy. Yes, that thing, that stuff matters. Yep, he is on the cusp of a technological revolution. Again, in transportation and communication. Yes, because uh, radio is, is, is now firmly established. TV is coming. Yeah. Uh, I mean, telephone is, is becoming more ubiquitous. And, and still not everybody has one. Right, right. But electrification, Elect- the yes. automobile, these are things that are transforming right. the national experience. And he's right there with it. And he's very much in favor of all of it. Right. And you know, in many ways, he's very progressive uh, in the positive sense of the word. Uh, in that you know he, he's he's all for full participation of the entire populace yes. in yes. the the dem- democratic exp- uh, experiment. Yeah, and he's very much okay. Let's let people with these ideas run with them. Let's not say okay, Ford, your Model T is pretty good, but here's how the government would design a car. You know, let's see what these people can do. Let's let the genius of the average really benefit the American people. Right. And, you know, this is, uh, again, remembering the context that he was in, uh, because of the much lower level of technology that we're talking about, uh, that level of innovation and, and 
uh, industrialization could more easily begin by some crackpot in his barn, uh, like a Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, you know, a car, even a Model T, is still a complex machine, but it, you know, all the parts are a lot easier to understand then than the, than the parts that go into a car now. Yep. And because of the, the nature of the world and how even more interconnected we are now than, than even the U.S. was in its own territory back then, it's much harder, and I recognize this, and even though I don't like it, it's much harder for the federal government to take as limited a role as he had then. Yeah. Uh, it's not to say that he would have given a, you know, that, that means we have to give a design for a car to a company and tell them to make it, because that's absolutely wrong. But in some ways, it's harder to get the government out of some of these roles simply because, uh, you know, you have things crossing state lines, you know, that is a proper role of the government to keep an eye on those things. Uh, unfortunately, I think we keep an eye on things that are inside state lines far too often. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, as we said, there are some things that he was wrong on a, a, a federal government's role. And it's even worse now. It's even harder now to justify keeping the government out of some things. Uh, partially, that's because we are so interconnected and we are so more, so much more aware. Because really, how much were people aware in California of how bad the flooding was in the Great Flood, uh, Mississippi Flood, uh, in 1927? You know, today that that's all over our, our news feeds and our in our phone all day long. In 1927, that would have been a couple of stories in the newspaper in the Los Angeles Times. Beyond that. The next day, too. Yeah, no, ju- yeah, not just the next minute, but the next day. Yeah, just the next day, or even a couple of days, depending, because yeah. you know that flood is not a, you know, happens in a split second. You know, there's build up to it, and and you know, then the ramification. You know, maybe you only report on it when there's a hundred thousand dead. I don't know, but because when it bleeds, it leads is always true, no matter what. Yeah, that's um, right. So, and and so in many ways, while I admire the, the approach they're taking, what they able to accomplish, I just don't know that it could be replicated today. Some of it, yeah, it could, I, I think. I think the mindset you could do. Yes. And with the understanding of, I have to work with the legislature and compromise and, and get to a middle course. Yeah, I think Reagan did a fair job of that. Yeah. I think he, and in some ways, I think he compromised too much. Uh, he was always big on, all right, we'll uh, get the tax cuts now, which is his primary thing, and then we'll do the spending cuts later. Which Congress would never give him. Yeah. Uh, there was only one year where he got uh, a, and not even a real, well, in real dollars in terms of inflation adjusted dollars, yes, we had a cut in the budget because they kept the, the federal budget at exactly the same dollar levels from one year to the next. It's right before we hit a trillion dollars. And that was a major accomplishment. And surprise, surprise, the deficit went down by a huge amount from one year to the next just by spending the same amount of money, uh, which is amazing. It just shows what happens when you can, you can grow the economy out of debt. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if, you the, the, if you don't spend it all. Yeah, the Keynesian ideal is you spend the money because that's what keeps the economy afloat. Right. But you can show that even if the government restricts its spending, the economy can still grow. Right. Coolidge showed that. So, so I want to wind up because we are we're we're hitting towards the end. Um, so, listeners, Coolidge is very much worth studying. 
I strongly recommend the Amity Schley's book. Again, it is very in-depth. Um, try to understand the mindset. Try to understand the, the context of the period. It does play a role. Um, Study history, but it, it, it always does. Yeah. But I really do think he is worth emulating and, and, and understanding in that, again, we can get there again. We, we can be for the average person. Right. I think that's, that's what he tried to be. He tried to be, you know, everything about America has always been middle class. It's a middle class revolution. Yes. Um, how you, you have kind of defined that loosely, but it's right. a middle class revolution, and he wanted to bring it back to that. Right. You know, if you define there. it as, you know, they always like to do the, the quintiles, the, you know, lower 20%, you know, next 20%, yeah. the middle, and so on. You know, if you want to define that as that middle 60%, then mm-hmm. I'm comfortable with that. Because uh, that's still going to hopefully help the people in the bottom 20%. And, you know, and honestly, I don't care if it helps the top 20% as long as you're helping the rest of them. Unfortunately, too much of today's uh, thinking is, no, we got to screw over this group because that's the only way we're going to help this group. Right. Again, I, I'm always opposed to the zero-sum game idea. Right. You know, if I have the pizza, you aren't left with the box. Right. Perfect. We History is always Give shown. me a buck, I'll give you three pieces maybe. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not three. History has always shown that human productivity is not limited. That's right. It, right. It can be, it can grow, and everybody can make their own pizzas if they try. Or at least order their own. Yes. So, um, I really, I just really, really like Coolidge. It's, it's worth studying. And Absolutely. You know, obviously, I don't think either one of us, Francis and I, did a whole lot of reading ahead of time. But, I mean, you know, we, we were familiar with him from our own. Because, honestly, we covered him in, in school, in college, in high yeah, school. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, we have read about him. It's yeah. just not, you know, we didn't dive yeah. into it for you for this one. What yeah. was the big scandal we trusted that was Martin. during his administration? Was that the Teapot Dome? Teapot Dome was during Harding. That was Harding. That was Harding. That's kind of, you know, Coolidge steps in at a good moment. And cleans all that up. Okay, so I, I did associate Teapot Dome with the 20s. I just couldn't remember yes, which part. But it, it, it's really... Harding is such a... He is a really hands-off guy. And doesn't really, you know, meddle with this stuff. But Coolidge, he's hands-off, but he also wants a very honest administration of government. And... He, you know, he does clean up all of the Harding mess, and it really does not touch him. So he, you know, he really is seen as a very honest and very upright guy who's trying to do the right thing for the country. And he, again, he he stands off from the reemergent clan. He he's very much racial equality. He's for women's suffrage. He's he's opposing very kind of mildly prohibition. Yes. He's, he's, he's I mean, he probably be he today's... does that on the basis that the federal government shouldn't have made it part of the Constitution. Yeah. Is what I would guess. Yeah, he's probably like, the federal government has no role to play in keeping people from drinking. You know, if a state wants to do that, fine. Right. But well, you know, it, it, it stay out a, of it. There's a very good and, and, and big argument that you could make that if it takes a constitutional amendment 
to criminalize alcohol uh, across the country. Why doesn't it take a constitutional amendment to criminalize marijuana, cocaine, or anything like that? Because mm -hmm. you can make, make an argument that they are destructive and harmful, uh, granted to a greater degree, but in the same ways as alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it's one of those things that if it works here, or if you have to do it this way here, why don't you have yeah, to do it this way yeah. here? Yeah. Uh, it's one of those things where, well, we agree to just ignore that stuff. In a way, it's, it's like we were talking about earlier, uh, you know, if you give the government power, they're never going to give it they're back. They're never going to give it back. That's right. Overturning prohibition is like the only only time. Right. <laughs> well, but that was not even a federal government. That was uh, led by the populace. You know, they were done with that. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's hard to believe that prohibition was done during the Roaring Twenties. You know, uh, it was, it's just, it seems yeah. odd. When we made alcohol illegal and then we had to turn right around and re-amend the Constitution to make it legal again. Right. Well, you know, it's one of those things. You should never uh, give an order that you know won't be obeyed. Uh, you should never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to, uh, and, and especially when you're coming, talking about politics. Yeah. And prohibition is one of those first things. Uh, you know, never right. give an order that won't be obeyed. So one last salute before we go here. At uh, I, I meant to try to get this done during the bourbon break, but we have not done this yet. We said we were going to. Yes. So while we are here at the atrium enjoying the sun and the view. Oh, yes, yes. We haven't even mentioned that we're in the atrium. Here. We're, we're, in our, we're in our, uh, our swag. Uh, swag here. We got our snakes and our swag. We went to breakfast this morning in our swag. Yep. Uh, did not uh, get a comment from the server. I thought maybe he would uh, kind of look at it and go. I, I think we were kind of all hunched over our plates. <laughs> <laughs> Shoveling that it's biscuit into, yeah, our, yeah. into our pie holes. Yeah. But a salute to Bruce Willis. Yes. Word has recently come that he's going to have to retire from his acting career. Uh, he has, uh, uh, it's called aphasia. Yes. Um, Which is cognitive disorder. It's cog yeah, I, it's not that I know a ton, but I would guess that it's akin to uh, uh, Parkinson's or, or uh, Alzheimer's of some sort. Right. Um, I mean, it sounds like it's from a head injury. You know, he, yeah, he famously yeah. did a ton of his own stunts, I believe. Yeah, um, you know, he's had a very action movie oriented career, uh, man's band type career. Oh yeah, and uh, it's very sad news. Very very it sad is. news. It is uh, very sad because you know some of the best. I mean, you know, best Christmas movie ever. Die, Die hard. Amen <laughs> to that. You know, even those uh, the lighter film Red. And Red yeah, oh yeah, Red and Red fun. Too. Those are fun movies. Yes, absolutely. So, you know. uh, he did a lot of uh, direct-to-video stuff in the last several, uh, you know, probably the last 15, 20 years yeah. even. Because uh, I occasionally come across a Bruce Willis movie on cable or something, or you know, one of the movie channels, uh, streaming services, that uh, I'd never heard of before. And it's like, oh wow, I didn't know he'd done this movie. Yeah, I mean, he's worked pretty much continuously since Die Hard. Right. Uh, and he's, I, I, I would imagine that because he's worked so steadily, he must have a good reputation as someone who comes, shows up, does the work, somebody yep. you can depend on, isn't going to call the director a prick, um, and, and well, move on. You know? Well, he's a great dramatic action and comedic actor. Yeah. You know, he started out Moonlighting, uh, and uh, also uh, uh, Blind Date. Yeah, Blind Date's a fun movie. Yeah. And, you know... They're great comedic roles. Uh, although, you know, Moonlighting is a little bit of a dramedy, first yeah. real dramedy that we can think of, but mm -hmm. is meant more as a comedic thing. You know, his uh, 
breaking the fourth wall uh, facial expressions and, and moonlighting yeah. were, yeah. were classic. Yeah, always classic. that that great little smirk. Yeah, always made you made you smile when you watched yeah. him on screen. Yeah, I, you know, but a lot of that changed. Of course, he got very serious and you know and tight lipped as the action persona took more of him. You see him in later movies. He's more like the guy in Pulp Fiction than he is David Addison. Yeah, but I mean, you know, he could still uh, he could, like you know. You look at Red and Red Two; uh, those are just as much comedy as they are uh, action films. And you know, it doesn't hurt that you're starring in that with Helen Mirren and uh, um, John Malkovich. John Malkovich. Oh, and, I mean, uh, talk about a cast. Yeah, who's know? the fourth guy? Uh, well, Morgan Freeman. Oh, Morgan the first Freeman. One, That's I think right. It is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, yeah, you're in with with great, great character actors yes. who can disappear into a role. I mean, very few other actors disappear into a role the way John Malkovich does. <coughs> and he, Malkovich is just so good at that. But yeah. they, you know, all of them are. Yeah. I mean, Helen Mirren is just a, uh, she's a national treasure. Uh, she really is. Uh, I don't care what country you're in, she's a national treasure. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, all right, well, I think we, we've come to the end, so salute to Bruce Willis here as, yes. we, as we leave uh, Calvin Coolidge. So, Francis, buddy, what's next time, man? We are going to go pop culture next time. And this is something that Robert in particular wanted to go with, but I don't Yes, this is my month. This is your month. That's very much so. Good for you, Uh, George Perez, the great comic book artist uh, extraordinaire that uh, Robert and I in particular are both fans of, but we all are. And uh, he's got a diagnosis of cancer uh, as we record this. pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer, which, as we know... uh, uh, the end is, is, I don't want to say nigh or near, but well, it is... When, yeah, we'll talk about more in the episode. We'll talk about more in the episode that. But we want to celebrate him and several of the folks that he worked with during that wonderful Bronze Age of comics that yes. is so, so wonderful. So, comic book episode next time, folks. Join us. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel.